Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Rachel Otis, whose pronouns are she and they. Rachel is a somatic therapist who lives with Crohn's disease and specializes in treating patients who also live with chronic illness. She's also very intersectional, and we're going to get into that as we discuss her health history. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. As we were saying, it's been a long time coming, so um, I'm super excited. And I saw another sort of spoony sister of mine on your podcast like a while ago. And then I was like, okay, I need to like look into this. (laughs) Who was it? Um, Devery. Oh my gosh. Oh, I love Devery. Yeah. Yeah, She's amazing. We only like know each other through the internet. It's like a great example of, I think the positive power of social media, like with chronic illnesses, being able to find each other and just like connect with one another. Yeah. So true. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on. And as so many of our listeners know, we start at the very beginning of your health history on this show. So I would love for you to tell us how you first realized that you were sick, how you first got that Crohn's diagnosis and what steps you've since taken to take control over your health. Yeah. Super fun. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Real jackpot there. Congrats. (laughs) With Crohn's. This is the time when we throw a party about it. (laughs) So I'm just, I took a little mental inventory to be like, well, I've I've had it for almost 20 years. Um, Mm. So I was, diagnosed when I was 14, which means I was 14 when I started feeling symptoms. Um, Essentially, um, for me, there was like experiences of intense pain in my lower abdomen. Um, 
the way that I can best describe it is <laughs> I would always describe it, especially as a teenager, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, kind of like someone just like sticking a knife in your gut and then like twisting it around. Hmm. So that, That's not an uncommon description that we hear on this show. Yeah. And side note, fun fact about Crohn's, just in case no one's mentioned this yet, hmm. um, the director. I want to say, or creator of that movie Alien. Do you know that? Yeah, movie? Ridley Scott. Uh, wait, the writer of the movie. I want to say he okay. wrote that scene. I've never seen it because I'm I can't do that. I can't but, either. <laughs> it's too scary it's for like, me. I guess it's like a famous scene where there's like literally an alien that comes out of like someone's abdomen or whatever. Yes, that sounds familiar. Read that he had as. Crohn's <gasps> and he literally like metaphorically wrote that as like a way to like express that pain and I was like oh my god yes an alien just coming right out of my yeah well because I think so many of us feel like when, when we first have this onset of chronic illness it feels like your body has been invaded by yeah. some kind of otherworldly force like an alien I mean because it because it becomes alien to us too and we're used to being healthy bodied able-bodied and then suddenly our health is taken from us it's a very out-of-body strange experience yeah totally wow Um, that's a very cool fact (laughs) yeah fun fact I was like all right I can relate to this um yeah it was just like a lot of time um, that started getting spent, like having to go to the bathroom and all the non-fun things that you don't want to talk about when you're 14. Um, mostly for me, like not, so I wasn't absorbing anything for, I guess, quite a period of time. Yeah. So nothing's getting absorbed. Everything's just coming like right through your system. So you're totally uh, malnourished. Yeah. And then for me, when I, so I had a lot of shame and embarrassment. Yeah. And so I didn't tell anyone for like maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe at least a month. Mm. But then there was a point in the symptoms where I started losing blood when I was going to the bathroom. Yeah. Um, and it was like a lot. So I was like, okay, <laughs> leading internally. Mm. Um, and, uh, that's kind of like when I had to figure out how to go to, you know, find a doctor and like tell my mom and all these things. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was like a very long process though, because as anyone with Crohn's might tell you, it's like, there could be 10 of us in a room and we could all have it so differently from one another, which I think it's why it's hard for other people to understand it aside from the fact that it's mostly invisible. Um, aside from when they put you on things like prednisone and then you get like a moon face. <laughs> well, that. yes, there's that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, when you're a teenager and that's always mm. fun. But um, what I want to say is uh, at this, like, as you're kind of saying, like invading your body and that kind mm. of thing. Um, for me, I also, concurrently I kind of went from being a child who was like um according to medical terms that I now don't believe in Mm -hmm. um but like underweight quote unquote for my age Mm -hmm. and then like maybe around eight um is when I started 
going on the other side of that spectrum. Mm. And I also think there was a lot of dysmorphia around it because it gets really medicalized and looking back, I'm like, whoa. Um, A lot of very damaging language in there for sure. Yeah. So at the same time, I already had felt betrayed by my body for a number of years, just like not wanting to be seen as fat or Mm. like associated with that word at all. Um, Growing up in like a very small town, going to Catholic school and having like uniforms. and Yeah. I was about to swear. I don't know if that's allowed on this podcast. Oh, please. It's it's more than allowed. It's actually my favorite when people swear. So please go for it. (laughs) And fucking dress code. Yes. Those things. Um, So it was like a very small um, kind of place. And then, you know, I, looking back, I can see how truly I had internalized the fat phobia because most people who do get Crohn's that severely, again, with the malnourishment, that would mean like that your body is getting emaciated. Mm. Like most people get like, like lose a lot of weight and get really, really thin and are malnourished. Um, and I remember being really angry at 14. Mm. Like now I have this like disease in my stomach can't even eat anything I was like drinking in shores for mm. like, like a period of time um and I still wasn't losing like a drastic amount of weight and that pissed me off I think more than anything yeah um so that's like really how the journey began um ultimately I had a very negative experience with the doctor And she, I will never forget, sat me down with my parents after doing, you know, just to name all the most, especially at that age, it just felt very invasive. Mm. So having someone even like do a rectal exam. Yeah. It's so, that's the kind of, like that kind of thing, unless you're given proper preparation, you know, and and sort of a heart-centered discussion about like what this is going to look and feel like, it's really... That's a really rough thing to go through, especially so young. Yeah. And just like then the, you know, colonoscopy and, and yeah. drinking shit and barium mm. and doing a, you know, MRIs with a contrast where they give you a. Put the, the radioactive egg. Yeah. Um, through like an IV, essentially. Mm. It was the one that I've done so that it, then they can take pictures of your intestines. All the fun things. Yeah. Um, and then only to have this woman, female doctor, um, and I say that with a little more surprise because I hold out a little bit more hope, but I know now that the patriarchy consumes all genders. Um, yes, thank said, you for noting yeah. that. Yep. Yeah. And essentially showed me the pictures and was like, yours is the angriest looking colon I've ever seen. And I was just like... Mm. Like, I, sorry? Is <laughs> it? Like, yeah. Um, so, and then she left, like, literally after that, I never saw her again. She left the practice. Something happened. I still was going untreated. So mm. my mom, I know one of your later questions is around, like, advocates. But one of my first advocates was my mom because I was still, like, a youth. And 
So she got me to be able to go to Children's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, because I grew up not too far away. Um, And that was like really important. And I pretty much went to Children's Hospital with my beloved first doctor. Shout out to Dr. Fishman. (laughs) She's still there. Um, But for being that more heart-centered, compassionate person, um, but also... I got to go there until I graduated college. So I was there. Amazing. <laughs> so they have like the best infusion suites. Um, mm. Because ultimately my journey has ever since then brought me to doing um, Remicade infusions. Mm. So like nothing else was working um, medication wise. Um, and so pretty much not too long after I started getting infusions like every eight weeks Mm. and now I'm almost 20 years later so that's a pretty long time yeah that's a very long time to be you don't talk about uh really like when you're in the children's bubble you don't have to like so much think about your future yeah Um, and that's rough too that transition from pediatric to adult care especially if you don't no one gives you a guide with adult care. With pediatric care, you feel like it's a little more sort of, you get mollycoddled a bit, a bit in a good way. You know, you get sort of held. They hold space for you, whereas that doesn't really happen with adult care, does it? Honestly, I just think it should be the standard of care for yep. across the board, no matter what the hell age you are, because let's just say what it is. I have never found a place that I've loved more than Children's Hospital. Mm. I've never had as good of infusion experiences. Mm. I have a giant like hematoma on my arm right now from my last infusion just from even I'm using like a at this point they use a a full on sonic uh, ultrasound. Mm. Wow. Um, But it's still problematic. So I would say it's a really rough transition. Um, It's not a good one. And it's definitely one part of the medical system that I, I hope gets to shift over time. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about the medical system in a bit, but let's pop back to this advocacy discussion, because I know that you mentioned that your mom was your advocate when you were a kid. How did that impact your relationship? with her? Is that something, you know, that sort of changed the power dynamic between you two? Did it bring you closer at all? Um, I happen to, so I'm also an only child. Hmm. Um, High five, and, me too. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> we always manage to find each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, but my mom has like a really big family, so I'm an only child, but I'm also like the oldest of 30 cousins. <laughs> so it's an wow. interesting dynamic. Um, so, uh, I was always just like very good is how I want to describe myself. And I think part of that, cause I haven't, you know, I haven't gotten to grow into anything that I am now also helped me to be super close with my mom. Um, and so, yeah, we were very close. She came to like all my infusions with me. Um, and honestly is like a fierce ass insurance system. yes 
barrier. So this like, often happens with the parents because they've got yeah. to fight for it first. Yeah. Right. So a lot of what she did, I think initially I was not seeing, like I was just really sick and I was just trying to deal with that. And she was dealing with that and all the insurance stuff. Um, like, let me just name that at this point in 2020, a Remicade infusion costs $70,000, one Remicade infusion. It is unbelievable, the cost of drugs. <laughs> this is the problem with for-profit, um, you know, it, corporate interest in the medical system, in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but again, places like Children's Hospital have a lot of like donors, um, or like donations, funds, um, ways. I don't know. She was just really good at navigating all that. Um, you know, so much. So I just remembered that when I was in high school, another, a really traumatic memory was that another boy, um, he was like on the verge of dying and no one could figure out what he had. And, um, at, he was in children's hospital at that point and I was going to my infusion. So I told my school, I'd bring like a care package and I brought it. And literally he said, I finally just got diagnosed and they found out I have Crohn's disease. Oh my goodness. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah know that like I think my mom did a lot even just with to help his mom understand the things that they won't tell you or teach yes well and that's the thing too there's no primer for navigating the healthcare system and it's so complex because of all of the red tape that's in the system right now yeah so it's it's a thing um (laughs) I would say I mean my ultimate advocate has to be myself. And then, you well, know, that's that. what I was going to ask next. Like, what is that? How has that impacted your relationship with yourself as well? Because you've been on this journey of self-acceptance from, it sounds like eight years old, you know, um, and how has that changed the way you see yourself and the way you move through the world? Yeah. Um, greatly. <laughs> as <a side> <laughs> how do I even put that into words Mm. um would you say positively or like is it is it a positive experience to discover yourself as your own advocate as an adult or is it also an additional stress that no one should ever have to go through (laughs) like I'm a therapist so both and (laughs) yeah and um I would say like I'm still now at this point 20 years later like it was only a few years ago that my mom handed over like the insurance baton. And that part of it alone is like somebody should pay us all to do the work of trying to navigate that shit and being sick yeah. and like understanding how it's just not. Yeah. So that's an added stress. And I, but I think ultimately advocating for yourself is, you know, a like a connects me to a sense of resiliency that I have Mm. um, that I witnessed for my mom. But then when I also witnessed for my mom is that there's so much hypervigilance and like survival mode that I also want to be the generation to be able to be like in thrival mode. So, you know, also having like chronic 
anxiety alongside all these things is probably important to name um, mm. because I've had that for like as long as I can remember as a small child mm. um, and not, you know, to get too much into like transgenerational things and things like that. But I do like to look at, um, again, Crohn's as like a both and like there's, mm. you know, my genetic history um, and, you know, some of the things they know about like, more um, populations of Jewish people are affected by Crohn's disease, Mm. um, for example. But then also for me, understanding that, like, ultimately anxiety manifests in my gut. Mm. Uh, Everybody shout out to just Googling neurogastroenterology. Love it. (laughs) but you know it essentially says our second brain in our Mm -hmm. gut so just imagine you know that's why like people say they feel butterflies in their stomach when they're nervous or have different sensations um but again what does it mean to like have that and have Crohn's or what does it mean to like be a young person and like really feel like you hate your body and hate your stomach and just kind of like want to cut it off (laughs) and ultimately have this, you know, painful cutoff inside your stomach. So Hmm. it's a lot of things. Um, and I would say it's, it definitely helps me to be an advocate for not just myself, but for other people. So if I wasn't, I don't know how other people do it, but if I wasn't like, I pretty much, shortly after getting Crohn's as a 14 year old girl I was like I want to work with people because I was like the missing gap is therapy it's like right. what I bring in <laughs> even in a children's hospital like a psychiatrist is just not gonna cut what hmm. someone needs for the emotional component of being a young child and being so different from most of like what everyone else mm. in their youth gets to worry about or not worry about. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such a fair point, And this comes up so much in the conversations we have on the show that mental health is such a massive component of chronic illness. And that if you don't get diagnosed with the chronic illness first, you will have some kind of mental health reaction to, uh, to a diagnosis that's going to change your life. And so this idea of mental health, access being a part of any kind of healthcare and its importance in these situations. And it's never a part of it in our system, is it? Or if it is, it's not necessarily well handled. Yeah. No. (laughs) Short answer, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make it easy to navigate. Um, And it also, you know, makes me think of how much privilege I still hold in my body. Like, the privilege to even have a mom, to have a mom who like knew how to navigate the system, um, to, I guess, be seen as white, which is something we touched on briefly before um, this podcast is just that I also identify as an indigenous woman um, being raised with like my Mi'kmaq tribe heritage. Right. Um, practices and spirituality so and your connection to that and the way that you present to a doctor at children's hospital for example are two separate things 
Interestingly enough, yes. Mm. Um, and uh, I still want to meet with my doctor and have like a follow up. <laughs> I want to do like a, um, you know, let's reflect on that experience. Because also, as much as I loved her, there is also this, you know, thread again of like the medical world kind of. Cl- classifying me as like morbidly obese or I mean oh mm-hmm. my gosh actually just you know looking back like not at all what I would consider that whatsoever right as like a smaller body I don't know maybe like a size 18 sometimes 16 mm-hmm. and, and you were called um, morbidly obese at that size yeah, right I'm like so at the same time that they're trying to quote unquote heal Crohn's they're also putting me in this like what they said was like a nutrition program oh great technically like looking back I recently found this like food journal and it was so fucked up and also shout out to like I wish at that point in history and time someone had also just like talked about food in a different way of like hey, let's look at like how gluten might affect you or how dare well, more about how it, how it makes you feel when you eat it, like your, your emotional and physical reaction rather than this is, this makes you fat or this makes you thin. Right. Right. Like all of what they were doing was just like restricting and, it, and yeah, became- it really encouraging eating like a disordered relationship to eating and food. I really think so. That's something mm. I'm just like now putting all the pieces together with, but yeah, definitely encouraging that. And then I think what the most fucked up part is, is again, my disease was in my stomach and it's one that if you look at it holistically, um, I think people forget and not to be crass, but like you can only get so thin, you can only lose so much weight and anyone who's been really sick will know that um before like your organs shut down and like your body cannot live anymore the this society focuses way more on the opposite and it's just like that's gonna take so much more than you know the anorexia and the bulimia and the orthorexia all the things we're breeding right now so um I once went to an herbalist who was just like, although she was still fat phobic, still wanted me to lose weight. And I never went back to her. The one little seed of magic that I took was that she's like, I would rather, or not rather, but like, it is more, um, there's more for me to be able to work with when what your body's telling me is like, it did everything it could to survive. So like, obviously you can't hold in nutrients. Um, like perhaps your body goes into like thinking it's going to starve mode and maybe as a survival protection, like um, having weight on my body also keeps me alive. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, And I think everybody's different that way. Everybody, everybody and everybody has a different reaction to stimulus and, and the way we hold weight or let go of it, you know, and everyone's individual in that sense. And if only we could 
look at bodies from an individual point of view rather than a standard point of view. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up writing my graduate school thesis on um, unlearning fat phobia and just like mm. medical bias. And Well, good, because we're going to get into that even more. <laughs> I, I want to know um, what a typical day is looking like for you now. As you're 20 years into treatment, you seem pretty like stable with, you know, the course of treatment. You know, how are you balancing the demands of work and life as you're managing potential symptoms and potential triggers of symptoms? I've built my entire life to be sustainable for my Crohn's disease. And that's something that took me many, many, many years to be okay with, not even okay with, but be like, oh yeah, that's the only way it can be. And um, people with chronic illness will agree we don't have a choice whether or not we self-care, quote-unquote, or, like, slow down or build these things into our life. It has to be there. So um, after surviving graduate school, not being given the opportunity to thrive whatsoever – um, well, let's touch on that really quickly. Cause this concept of, I mean, this comes up so much in the show too, that like when we go to college or graduate school, either that's when we get sick or that's also a time that, you know, makes it very difficult for us to thrive either because of lack of access to medical, you know, appropriate medical care or because we're taught that it's okay to run ourselves into the ground, right. To make ourselves overtired and, and do all nighters. Yeah, I don't know how I did that in undergrad, but me neither. <laughs> I, I pretty much feel like I did thrive in undergrad, despite um, having worked so hard to get them to understand what my accommodations were that I needed. Um, however, graduate school—I mean, that—that's a whole other show, but um, pretty hellacious. <laughs> I could see why I wasn't. I was maybe the only one with chronic illness. Um, I, there was only two people with like bigger or fat bodies. Um, only one black person in my cohort, very few people of color. And they all got pushed out of my program for being non um, like they weren't uh, English as their first language. Wow. That's really really bad rather than like seeing that as like the ultimate gift and amazingness, especially for somatic therapy, which is the mind body connection. Um, that didn't happen. So yeah, I guess for me, grad school showed me that that was not sustainable, um, because I did then work in a clinic for two years Um, in the heart of San Francisco. I was living in Oakland. I was on the subway. I was like living this mask life way before any of this pandemic Mm -hmm. and look, getting looked at like, what are you doing? Um, It was very traumatizing and I was very sick throughout grad school. Um, And what I want to say is it showed me that I could not be a therapist who who, well, I can't be a therapist who works in the center of a city, (laughs) even though I had an amazing opportunity after school. Um, I I worked really hard to become the first person in my school, 
maybe in the state, the first somatic therapist to go for double licensure. Wow. Um, like the therapy system. But then again, through that process, that's how I ultimately divested from licensure because I realized the system was not made to include therapists who have disabilities or illnesses. And I don't know how we could ever afford or survive the dynamics of what they're setting up. Um, and so like, I already have, you know, $200,000 of student debt. I already worked for two years for free. My clients would hand me that money. I'd take that money and then I'd hand it back to the clinic. <laughs> it was funded with my federal government student loan money. So wow. Vicious cycle. Vicious cycle. So, um, now my life is one where I've always, since I opened my practice just about two years ago, always worked with clients virtually. Um, and my clients are all over the world. So I'm not bound by the laws of like state by state. Um, and then additionally, it's important for me to work on a sliding scale because another thing we don't talk about a lot is how people with chronic illness are have disproportionate um like bills to pay (laughs) yeah disproportionate expenses right and then also often can't work in the same capacity as like this american nine to five intense hamster wheel it's more like nine to nine at this point isn't it i mean the expectation is and you can't be good at one thing you have to be good at several things yeah yeah, Which absolutely. Not be good. You used to have to only be good at one thing. I know. But yeah, some of us who graduated in undergraduate and undergrad in 2010, just after everything just went boom in our economy. So it was a rough um, time. But then I also see people my age. I jokingly call myself an elder millennial. As do I. (laughs) Did you get that from Eliza Schlesinger too? (laughs) No. I She has a whole comedy special called Elder Millennial. No. I'm both excited, but I also really thought that was something I made up in a session with a client. To be fair, you definitely made it up yourself. We don't know who made it up first, right? but the good news is you're not alone because I also think of myself as an elder millennial. Okay, I totally need to look this up. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Oh my God. I was literally like, you're an elder millennial if if you're excited that scrunchies are back in. Oh, I got thrilled. You're also like enraged at the state of the world, then you're probably an elder millennial. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> if you were raised to think that the food pyramid was one way and you've learned that it's upside down, also an elder millennial. Oh my God. If you've learned that the melting pot is just cultural appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so true. So have you been in a situation, I mean, we're talking about invisible illness here, fat phobia aside and like, you know, gender and and race discrimination aside, which we will get into in a sec. Have you ever been in a a position where you have been forced to justify the existence of your illness to people who couldn't see it and therefore didn't understand it? She's shaking her head. Yes. I mean, Hit us, hit us with some anecdotes. Not on a daily basis. I mean, for yeah. sure on a daily basis when I lived in the Bay Area. I was like wow. constantly having to prove myself. 
I want to throw out that I did not experience the sort of traditional positive stereotypes of that area. I experienced a lot of, um, Hmm. uh, a lot of negative things, just even being a queer woman, but then also with invisible illness, um, it, it can't really be separated from my fatness because something as simple as me needing the disability seat on the BART on the subway Very true. Um, equated to like me having to navigate how many men were like man spreading and then how many of them might have an invisible illness. I would say one out of 10. I would also say that very few of them have an invisible illness that makes their balls so big they need to spread their legs that wide. (laughs) That's a whole separate thing. Just, I'm actually talking about that man spreading in the disability seats. Yeah. In the special seats where you're like, why are you, what's actually happening? (laughs) I've actually like literally gotten an argument one time with a man who didn't give up, who wouldn't give up a seat for a woman who was like eight months pregnant. Oh, that's really bad form. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, I guess it doesn't have to be even be invisible. So um, there's that. I one time lost consciousness on the subway, and I literally had to, like, crawl out at the next stop, and I laid. No one helped you? Thousands of people on the Market Street. <gasps> art stop, like, arguably one of the most populated ones, and... Not one person said one word. Um, That's, I mean, wow. Thumbs up my experience there. But I will take it all the way from like, you know, the Bay Area who claim to be very conscious about a lot of things and in some ways are. Um, But then here I now live in Maine. um, And last summer alone, I had to first advocate for hitting a parking spot at the beach. Just thinking about some of the ways I've, you know, had to quote unquote prove myself or I really feel like it's being like discriminated against. Mm. Um, again, it's been very intersectional with what is visible or hyper visible about me, which yes. is the size of my body, which this society says is not okay. Mm. And so to be honest, um, it took me a long time to advocate to get a handicapped spot at the beach um, to explain that the beach can't be exclusive to able-bodied people. Mm. Um, it often takes me a lot for people to understand why I'd even have a handicap placard. Um, shout out to fellow Crohn's people who have ever had a bathroom emergency yes. or ever joint pain or um like and again no one told me I could ever get this if I had this when I lived in the Bay Area so much stress and pain would have been relieved but figured it out now that I'm back um and then it was like once they finally you know on the basis of me being like look up the Americans with Disabilities Act um, this is illegal. Essentially, you gotta have per parking lot, whatever. There's like a law. You you have to have handicap parking. Mm. Um, I've three times now experienced people with non-handicap placards and non-handicaps parking in the spot. Oh my god, it's so unbelievable. And then, oh, are you ready? Because you're not gonna be ready for this part. Oh God. Um, all three times they were 
near their cars or in them or whatever. So I pulled up behind and I start with my therapist voice, which is like, hi, um, would you be able to move so that I, a person with a handicap placard, could use the spot? Really, really very uh, reasonable. I try to, I try to therapy it out. Yeah. I kid you not, all three times, three times, all three people that looked like male identified people mm-hmm. came back so ferociously with almost the exact same sentiment. Wow. Are you sure you're disabled? Or are you just fat? <gasps> oh, oh yeah. God. That's a real thing. All three times, one started with like, you know, maybe you're mentally disabled or maybe if you lost weight, yeah, it was, it was a whole, yeah. So like, this is like the depth of people's, um, the one person said as they were like yelling things at me, um, cause let me just tell you that I, I get like, uh then my Bay Area Rachel comes out because then I just go like next level of like, oh, wait, you thought you were going to do this to me, but you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't bring that Rachel out on the podcast, but she's pretty fierce. But are you and... worried like in the situation like that, my fear is always, what if this person has a gun? Because this is the country we live in. Yeah, I couldn't live my life like that. Otherwise, I yeah. just wouldn't be able to live my life. I did feel that way more when I lived in the Bay Area um, because it was very, very violent and like men would like threaten to like physically harm my partner all the time just for like us being like queer and like public together. So like I felt that there wasn't a barrier there. Um, One of the men definitely had like a veteran out like huge truck with like American flags and like um yeah I mean I guess for me like I I'm I just can't like there's something within me that just like cannot allow that kind of but it's good but also yeah it can be dangerous um well it can be dangerous only because of this country I mean if you were in the UK it would be a totally different story Right. Um, so it's a thing, but like, also, you know, like, are you going to shoot me over this? And then like, that's, you know, that's going to become a whole other thing. So, um, you know, I think I don't let that fear. Yeah. I think it's my Micmac, some of my uh, Jewish heritage. My grandfather was a defense attorney. Um, So he's pretty, and he really just like stood up for the marginalized folks um, Mm. in that era who were getting really wronged. Um, So I think there's just something in me too. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I, I, and it's, I would say I sometimes go out of my window of tolerance is what I might say as a therapist. And I like, other people might say, you know, see red. Um, But what I thought was interesting is someone else yelled to me, like, you just need to get a job. And so I want to name that there's somewhere an assumption that people with handicaps Mm. or disabilities 
I guess, or just like a handicap placard, I guess is what I want to say. Like uh, there's all these assumptions that get made because you then can't see me be in a wheelchair. And then the times that I have had to be in a wheelchair, like when I go to the, when I have traveled, I have like a very specific protocol I follow. Mm. And um, it also over the few years, I've realized I can access wheelchair assistance. Yes. I don't need an excruciating pain for mm-hmm. the two hours that I'm in the security line. I don't even need to be in the line for two hours. Like, and um, people still look at me a certain way. And I don't think anyone would ever look at me that way if I was thin. Um, so again, there's like the invisibility of my illness mixed with the hyper visibility of my body size Mm. um that's just always gonna be both right because of it's the yes the the yes and also yeah yeah, yeah, totally things can exist simultaneously well let's let's talk about those parts of your identity within the healthcare system as well because i'm wondering about your experience in the healthcare system of prejudice and or privilege because of the way you Mm -hmm. present so, you know, you present as someone who probably appears to be white, right? But obviously there's much more mm-hmm. to that story. And you are a fat woman, right? And you're you're going into these appointments with various clinicians, practitioners. Do you think some of your experiences might have been different if you presented differently, if you were thin, if you were male, you know, and, and also I know you mentioned before we hit record that sometimes your partner who's black comes with you to appointments as well and how that's also sort of been a a force for change in your interactions. Yeah. So I'm interested to know what has that experience looked like for you in terms of what's visible and what's not in the healthcare system? Yeah. Um, it's a very big question, so please take your time. I know it's oh my God, 20 years have been so varied. Um, yeah. Like, it's really evolved. But, um, you know, as soon as I came into, like, my queer identity, um, I noticed just, like, how that can be different navigating the adult medical world space and being chronically ill and not always feeling comfortable or not knowing how open doctors are um, because then things come up like I was on a medication that essentially um, would, you know, kill a fetus, not to be harsh, but. um, No, that's, I mean, a number of medications you're not supposed to get pregnant on them because they can cause issues and complications. Yeah. Right. So it, that became like a whole thing. I had to start getting comfortable around like when they were just like, okay, well, you know, can you be getting pregnant? And I'm like, no, but really no. Biologically not very possible. Yeah. I had to navigate that and then also navigate. Um, obviously I just, I would say my base level of privilege is just the fact that I can access insurance and that I had a mom who was like educated and being able to do so like education's a privilege. All of these things are privileges. Like I had good access to like good 
healthcare children's hospital in Boston happens to be the number one children's hospital in the world. Wow. Um, which is both amazing and shows you the depth of fat phobia on that level. Right. Um, but yeah, so like access to all these things. Um, but then my body size just immediately often being like a like depending on the fat phobia of the doctor being a barrier to that. So I've had my same nurse practitioner, like general doctor since I was 13, actually. Um, Like even when I lived in California, I was like, I will come home for physicals and things like that. Absolutely. Um, Because she's a strong advocate and like it's so amazing to have found her. But then navigating adult GI doctors has been really problematic. Um, More recently, like I tried to find a new doctor out here. And the first one that I met was like, he didn't know a thing about me or my history. He hadn't even gotten my chart yet or anything. And one of his like opening discussions was talking about how dangerous it would be for someone with Crohn's essentially like suggesting like, I wouldn't want to get weight loss surgery. And I was like, excuse me. Wait, whoa, this was like, I'm, I'm definitely not even in the range in my opinion for like, but also, what unless you're should... going in to inquire about weight loss surgery, why is that even a topic of conversation? Like, it was just, I was just like blown away because you have to imagine that would be a doctor who knows that my disease is in my intestines <laughs> being okay with a surgery that goes right in that part of your body. Like yeah. that's would never be okay. So it's entirely what I say to yeah, what I say to everyone, that's when that um, self-advocacy kicks in. Uh, for my patient, for my clients, I offer a service that like, I work with so many people who are so afraid to go to the doctor and I understand why. And I'm like, put me in your pocket. You can have me on speed dial. I can be your patient advocate. So I also do a lot of patient advocacy work. Um, And in that moment, I informed him what I believed, what my beliefs were, and also like whipped out some scientific facts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And pretty much was like, I'm not going to work with this dude. Yeah, good for you. uh, He was like, yeah, let's schedule this colonoscopy. I'm like, you think I'm going to let you go up my butt? butt. No way. Yeah, no way. Are you kidding me? Like, I can barely have a conversation with you. Why would I give you an invitation to my asshole? Yeah. Exactly. That's like the goal of your life. Oh, my God. I'd be like, I need to like turn that into a (laughs) t-shirt. Oh you have god. my permission. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> um yes, literally. And so that's why I try to empower people to find the right doctor for you. Yeah. Find the right combination of people. Um at and some that can point be you ask me what- 
sorry to cut in here, but like that can be particularly fraught as well because we're dealing with a disease that like it affects you in what might be considered an outwardly taboo way, you know, and that it's like a bathroom disease, you know, but it's also about sort of moving past that and understanding that like this is your human experience and it's entirely valid, isn't it? Right. Yeah, totally. Sorry, what were you Uh, That was another Oh, I was just thinking when you said that when I was 14 when I got diagnosed, I always felt like, why couldn't I have just gotten like a disease that was like in my arm or (laughs) like people understood because like trying to explain that to teenagers was just, I just didn't tell anyone for years. So I just kind of lived as an able-bodied person, like varsity tennis. I don't even know how I was doing what I was doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, like secretly getting sick in the bathroom. So, right. um, yeah, I think that's, I was just going to say, um, I don't know. It's all, mm-hmm. it's all there. It's all connected when I think about it and reflect mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Yeah. So the self-advocacy part is, you know, important. And also it's like a muscle to be flexed over time. And also it doesn't mean that it's fair that we have to do it. But if we value our own lives, unfortunately, the way the system is set up not to truly value them, we have to be able to like side with our bodies over anyone and anything else, essentially. Absolutely. And then what about these experiences when you have gone into appointments with an advocate, when you've brought your partner with you? How's that all played out? Yeah. Oh, that was the most disastrous experiences (laughs) or those are. There's one that like stands out just happened in the past couple years. Um, That is like the be all end all of understanding how racism works in the medical system how or potentially all three you know factors of like queerness and interracialness and fatness but um I've seen just like true coldness come over these nurses like I've never seen before and I'll be the first one to say I've had a lot of negative experiences with nurses so I'm mm. glad that a lot of want to like celebrate them but I find that field in particular very problematic and also they're not being served by their system like they need therapists Mm. themselves yes um, as do the doctors to be quite honest everyone does yeah totally but like they see a lot of trauma a lot of things um and often I'm in oncology centers that's another thing that's really hard and in my dream of dreams, I will that, create an amazing... Is that because of the infusions for Remicade? You're going to the oncologist? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's because a lot of hospitals don't have infusion suites just for other types of infusions. And that is extremely traumatizing to be very still very young um, and be surrounded by that. Um is yeah. really, really. Yeah. So in my dream, I will have an infusion center that is like an East meets West um, place where we can do everything in one, but have it be like a comfortable experience. Um, but essentially, 
And why aren't nurses and doctors having diversity trainings? Side note. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing my partner in again to this all white place in Maine, for example, um, was different than like bringing my partner in to some of the places I was in um, the Bay Area, to be honest. So that's important to name. Um, yes. It's very much couched in New England mm. that I, um, that like the starkness of like the anti-black racism comes forward through like them not interacting with very many black people Hmm. so um this nurse just essentially like refused me treatment um because she was unhappy with my partner, um, I had tried to advocate to make sure she was going to take my, this is like the depths of the shit we do. I right. needed to make sure she was going to take my blood so that I could take and specifically take a vial to test my vitamin D level, which is something they like always forget to do, even though there's an mm. order and it's a whole fucking thing. Yes, how does that happen? Every time have I have an order for blood, there's one thing left off. Well, and it yeah, it's just, never ceases to amaze know. me. <laughs> the more technology there is, the less they all communicate with each other or something. Yeah. And, um, in any case, I just want to say the more I seem to be an advocate for myself, the angrier um, nurses and doctors, the ones that I don't want to work with anyway, <laughs> right. the angrier they get or the more defensive they get when right because they don't like being called out and they don't like a patient who seems to know what they'd want right and so just for me asking for vitamin d and then um her i think she went left the room to get the needle again this one's gonna stick a needle in my arm comes back in and then my partner reiterated like i just want to make sure you're going to be able to take the vitamin d because her blood coagulates at a certain, like she just had the whole thing down. And the woman just like snapped to her and was like, I don't like that you're being so aggressive with me. It's like typical white response. Yeah, that's a a real white privilege response. Calmly advocated for me to have my vitamin D level taken. And she we were like what like we literally were so caught off guard she proceeded to like throw a tantrum and then and was like I'm not doing this I am not doing this and then she like literally put the needles down that she was about to stick me with and left the room and then left us in the room and then nobody came in and I waited all of 10 minutes before I stormed out in true Sagittarius fashion. <laughs> and I went to the emergency room, whereupon they told me they could not infuse me with Remicade and all of the beds were full. So then the head nurse had to take me back to the infusion center and I had to get infused by racist mm. pieces of shit. And then I just had to sit there in a chair with a bunch of people who I knew I could never go back there again. Pretty right. Much. And, and this is the thing. It's like, there's trauma on both sides, right? Like as you had so 
so intelligently observed, you know, like nurses and doctors, they need therapy. They also need diversity training. But as a patient, you're already dealing with a potential trauma every time you go near a medical center, you know, just moving through the world can be traumatic. So there's trauma on both sides. And like, how do we learn to meet one another in the middle unless we take the time to try to understand one another? Great question. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's more of a rhetorical <laughs> question. <laughs> don't, I don't expect you to solve that problem in one day. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, but I think that's like a question that more people actually need to sit with. That's like mm. the question that drives my whole passion of life and my work is um, bridging the gap and understanding right. why those of us with chronic illness would have offshoots um, affecting our mental health, anxiety, depression, um, and why, like, the medical system just dropping us, you know, essentially um, yeah. is very problematic. Um, Absolutely. It, it needs to be part of it. Mm, and we're going to get into your work in just a minute, but I, I wanted to ask you, you know, based on these experiences, do you think that many of the adverse experiences that you've had could potentially have been avoided if like you presented as a thin woman or if you were a white man going into these appointments, like, or if your partner maybe had been a white woman instead of a black woman, like, do you think that some of these situations could have been less traumatic for you because people are holding these inherent biases? Yeah, when you ask that or see that, like it really illuminates to me how much I don't live in that space. Yeah. I could never even fathom what it would be like to be in a thin body mm. or a male body. But That's I know. It's probably a for good sure. thing. You should be enjoying your experience of you rather than <laughs> wishing you were something <laughs> other. Right. But just also like, I think thinking of it like, whoa, um, there's something about that that just kind of like hits me in the heart to be like, oh, that fucking sucks. Just thinking about. I'm so sorry yeah, I no. asked that question. Let's just pretend we didn't talk no, about it. <laughs> I I, no, I think it's important though. I think mm. that's actually really important to reflect on. Um, uh, and I have like a good enough hold on my, like where I yeah. sit with it to be like, oh, I really still so speak to just the fact that like the the short answer would be yes mm. I do think males are treated I will totally try to find this article if I can find it or send it mm. to you that was the time it kind of broke my heart but a woman just kept getting misdiagnosed mm. um a thing that happens for women a thing that happens for a lot of women with Crohn's disease as well whether they're skinny or fat it's a lot of misdiagnosis we're actually getting to the real issue. Yes, absolutely. Um, but she wrote a whole article that she was like, I don't think half of these things would have happened to me if I wasn't um, a visible woman of color was her experience. Right. And um, so short answer, yes. And that's mm -hmm. like, you know, pretty much what is still wrong with <laughs> the medical yeah. world right now. Would you also say that like these racial, gender, you know, fat phobia, these inequalities in the healthcare system are tantamount to a public health crisis? Hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely, 
I say I do not think obesity is the epidemic. I think weight stigma or fat yeah. phobia is the epidemic. And that's what we Thank need to you. be treating. And what I wrote my 40-page thesis on, and I presented it in a room full of mostly thin, white, able-bodied therapists because mm-hmm. I said, you know what? Four years with these people, and I don't think any of them would I trust mm-hmm. to work who are fat or to work with people who have chronic illness and that fucking broke my heart and that made me want to work with my you know my communities even more um and again for some people with Crohn's it can be hard to see someone like me who's still able to thrive in certain ways um and not eligible for surgery for example so I will never have that experience of having a stoma um, mm. or I, I am not so fully debilitated for my everyday life that I'm, you know, bed bound or things like that. Um, so again, it's on a spectrum. And I, I think, so especially people with um, Crohn's in particular, there's a massive gap there between supporting them with their mental health or just, I learned that some people just take like pain medication, which I've literally never been, uh, I'm also allergic to it, but that's never been an option for me. Yeah, definitely. Well, because it's effect, the effect it can have on your stomach and, and intestines is probably not a positive thing when it comes to a disease like Crohn's. Yeah, yep. It's all very intersectional. See how it wasn't hard to grasp that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that basic concept is even hard for like a doctor to grasp. And that's Yeah, which shows the, the lack in their understanding. That they're they're learning about so much that they almost can't learn about anything specifically enough to be able to treat it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why pediatrics has that sweet spot um because there's like I don't know they're still focusing in on like a specific population right absolutely there's more of a a specialty and with kids part of the training I think is also about being more sensitive which we need for adults too just because you're like that with kids doesn't mean you shouldn't also be like that with everyone else Yes. Shout out to all the people who are child life specialists, which mm-hmm. is something I turned in an undergrad, but like we need adult life specialists that aren't just social workers to be quite honest. Like, yes. And that means, you know, maybe someone who comes to visit you when you're alone at your infusion and maybe they give you like an arts and crafts project. Cause why does that need to stop just because mm. you're not, you know, certain yeah. age anymore? Absolutely. So let's talk about your advocacy work. Tell us about your work as a somatic therapist, what that means. I know you touched on it earlier. Um, and, you know, this idea of divesting so that you can treat people worldwide and how that's impacted your practice. I'm curious to know the role that your chronic illness plays in all of this work. Totally. Um, So again, for anyone who isn't aware, somatic therapy um, or the training that I did essentially centered in the mind body connection. And so for me, I very much honor that. 
Um, it wasn't until I got to work in my personal life with a somatic therapist and she also had an autoimmune disease and an invisible disease that I finally felt like um, I could kind of reclaim my, my mind-body connection. And so um, that means that I work with people beyond just talking. I think that's important to name, even though we do work virtually, which is something, um, as I mentioned before, I, I've always done. Um, essentially both for myself to make this work accessible for me and um, for my clients to make it accessible for them, whether they're, you know, um, single parents, whether they're um, from communities that typically have been like going to therapy is not okay, right? Like the black community, um, doesn't have that same experience with therapy and that's because uh the psychology community was very racist and um right like it's very valid for them to feel like that and mm. and because there's there's distrust in in healthcare for good reason right for very good reason um one of the nonprofits my partner and I are looking into starting is actually like a nonprofit specifically for um, Black people who become, like, diagnosed with a medical illness or cancer um, as, like, a resource space because we're losing far too many Black people because of the invalid health care they're receiving. And that's just, like, yes. not okay ever. But, like, it's mm. 2020, so it's certainly not okay now. Right. Um, so yeah, not to sidetrack too much, but um, decolonizing the therapeutic practice, like that's a word that's going around a lot right now, but really I feel like that is what I essentially do and have been doing. Um, I, you know, chose to not be in licensure. Yeah, if I was a, like a very wealthy, probably well-positioned white person, um, yeah, I probably could have afforded to to get licensed in every state that I'd want to work with someone in. However, I did not find it therapeutic that um, if my clients ever had an emergency or needed to leave the state, I would legally not be able to speak to them um, as a as a licensed therapist. That's a true across the board. Still. Yeah. Wow. Um, that in and of itself was not therapeutic. Um, yeah, that and, creates you know, a, a discontinuity of care. <clears throat> right. And then also I wanted it to be accessible. So just physically accessible, the most physically accessible it could be is to be wherever people are and they can pull me up on their screens, but also monetarily accessible. So I work on a sliding scale basis. Um within a certain range, depending on um, people's situations and whether they're working, how much money they make and things like that. So that also allows me to work um, like through an intersectional and like social justice lens as a therapist by setting up my therapy business in the same way that I model 
you know, the activism work that I do or everything that I do. Well, really, and, and in providing care in the way that you would like to receive it as well. Snaps to that. Actually, what's <laughs> funny is two things I do as a therapist. One, I call them confetti popper moments. I literally got I love confetti this. poppers. And, <gasps> no um, way. <laughs> I like celebrate my clients when they have like, sometimes, you know, there's like these big wins that nobody else sees, but I get to see them. So we have a confetti popper moment and then we get to like mm. celebrate it. That's lovely. Um, in the wake of the pandemic, I branched out to jazz hands and spirit fingers. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes clients see me dancing around um, when confetti poppers aren't accessible. But what you just said made me want to have one of those moments. Um, but I forgot I hadn't introduced that concept to you yet. So <laughs> I just jazz hands. I love it. Um, pretty much what I do in session. (laughs) That's so lovely. Yeah. And it's amazing because like this concept of having a cheerleader on your team, this is what therapy really is all about. Right. Um, and I think often that point is missed, you know, um, when the medical system doesn't necessarily support therapy from really a very therapeutic lens, particularly as you're saying, you know, with this licensure and, and divestment, um, you know, that like if licensing is actually something that's going to exclude others, then actively choosing not to participate in that system is one way to push to create change and to, you know, give validity to the work that you're doing outside of these confines. More jazz hands. That's all I can say. (laughs) I want all the confetti poppers. Yes. And again, I just want to I just want to say really quickly, it's both and again for me, like yeah. I am a huge fan. I will say this time and time again of using one's privilege to infiltrate fucked up systems from the inside out yeah. so that you can start trying to like systemically create change. Mm. Um, and so I do believe that we will come to a time where the BBS, the Board of Behavioral Sciences, the like be all and all of licensure. Mm. Um, again, not to be crude, but um, generationally speaking, majority of them are like 60 and above. They're still doing everything through snail mail and making people wait two months to get their licensing. Oh boy. Um, that generation didn't have to worry about like student loans or debt or anything like that. So um, I do think once us like elder millennials and the next generations start to take over those systems, it will be again, both and like hopefully changing the system to be more inclusive, but then again, honoring those of us that at least for right now, it does not um, make room for. So we Mm. do this work in other ways. Absolutely. So I know we've talked a lot about the healthcare system and you don't have to have an answer for this question. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, we've talked about a lot of the ways in which the healthcare system can improve. Are there any ways in which it's actually working the way it's currently designed or is that just a nah? (laughs) You know, it was funny. I saw that question and I think I laughed out loud because my brain immediately (laughs) was like, I could go 
on and on about the ways it doesn't work. Yeah, like we, we've uh, talked so much about how it's broken. Like, I'm wondering if there's anything um, that needs to be preserved when we do burn it all down to build it back up again. To be honest, I, well, you know, we did touch on this gem of like whatever is happening in the pediatric world. Mm. It does feel, again, there's still some dangerous fucked up, like trying to make a child lose weight. Yeah. (laughs) Things happen and the atmosphere is more healing than mm. any I've, I've gone to more hospitals on the west and east coast from cedar sinai to brigham and women's to you know whatever and i just i would say what what works are the people who still care <laughs> What works are the individuals who still have compassion and they're able to to hold space for the whole person that comes in. Beautiful. And nothing else for me resonates as much as that does. So when I have those moments, like, you know, my gem of a nurse practitioner who, you know, exists here in a small town in Maine, she somehow gets it. She's very intersectionally feminist. She's very inclusive um, as I've grown over the years of my queerness. Um, she knows and loves my partner and is very respectful of her. Um, she's very non, whatever the opposite of fat phobic is. Um, she's very size inclusive. Mm and believes in the concept of the possibility of health existing at all sizes. Mm. So those are the people that make it work. And what I want to say to any of those people listening is we just need you to be a little bit more courageous than you already are and try to like make some of those waves ripple out because it can't just be you and it can't just be us like in that office. It has to be the whole, you know, your boss and your boss's boss and their boss and then the system and the whole thing. So I Keep think fighting. that's what works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ongoing evolution, I mm. think. Beautifully said. So I'd love to get into some top three lists as we head into sort of the ending portion of the interview. And I'm wondering what your top three tips would be for someone who suspects maybe they've got something off. Maybe they're already diagnosed with Crohn's. Just someone who's living in this spoony uh, spectrum with us. What would your top three tips be for navigating life with invisible illness? So number one is this concept of both and being in in everything. So as much as I believe um, that most people can be supported by Western medicine, I also believe it's vital to explore beyond that and look into other modalities that are going to support your body. Every single week, I see a chiropractor a massage therapist, a physical therapist, and a cranial sacral therapist. I know that's a lot, but with where I'm at and my pain levels and everything that I manage in my body, I have gotten to the place where I can like 
have the system understand um, these are things I need for my Crohn's, even if my doctor like has to write down um, that, which is very true. Oh, she has a sensitivity in her neck or like whatever that is. Like they don't look at you as a whole system. So you have to look at yourself as a whole system. And that's within the Western medical field. That's um, in other modalities that might resonate for you. And that's also in just like how you're moving through your day, um, how your nervous system is feeling, how you're nourishing, how you're hydrating or resting. Um, so it's probably more than a number one. <laughs> that was, that was uh, like top, top three all in one, but I'm, I'm open to more. I think I, yeah, I think that's it. It's like, it's all wrapped into one mm. for me. I think. Yeah. Take all a multi-systemic day. approach to your own body, you know, advocate for what <laughs> you not. need. Both and yeah, all of it. Oh my gosh. Actually, my, I mean, maybe my real number one is please, please um, consider seeing a therapist. Yes. Like you are feeling off and please consider you always have a choice actually for as fucked up as the system is with insurance and everything you can work it. You do not have to go to the first doctor you see. You don't have to go to the first therapist you see. You you are finding someone that's working for you. They're not just assessing you. You are assessing them. And that's really important. So that's my other thing I want to say. <laughs> I love that. What about a top three list of things that give you unbridled joy? So this can just be when you need a moment of joy, like a confetti popper moment. But, you know, obviously you've made lifestyle adjustments because of living with Crohn's. And I want to know what you would never compromise. This can be like a guilty pleasure, a secret indulgence, a comfort activity if you're having a flare. But three things that you turn to to light you up. Yes, I love this. My therapist self has to, of course, preface it with I don't actually believe there's any such thing as a guilty pleasure. Love it. Thank you. Just a pleasure, period. And we get to unlearn that guilt. Um, So what I want to say is, I think, um, I mean, what I would call joyful movement. So moving my body in any way that feels good um, is like top kind of on my list, like creating something different in my physical self helps create a shift in my mental self. Um, totally. Uh, number two, dark chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, and overly expensive smoothies that I could probably make myself, but like <laughs> when somebody else makes it. Yeah. Uh, it's like the um, coffee so indulgence for for other people who like just want to go out and it tastes better when someone serves it to you. <laughs> for other people who don't have Crohn's and who can probably drink coffee without getting absolutely sick. yes, <laughs> yeah. So um, that and then um, like all of my. Actually, I, I'm just, I just looked up and I saw it on my bookshelf. Um, I would say pleasure and pleasure activism, which mm. pleasure activism is 
um, an amazing read. I think everyone should engage in. And I actually run a book club um, ongoing, and that brings me tons of joy. But um, myself, like helping myself and supporting others to find new pleasure pathways and not just um, lean into the long-held pain cycles, which our body really biologically wants us to, mm. but really makes me pleasure is, um, is like one of my top joys, like joy itself, pleasure itself. That. Just yes, that's beautiful. And that can take on so many forms, which is so that's such a lovely concept. I love that idea of pleasure activism and we'll have to link to the book yeah. as well. Uh, on the website for this yeah. episode. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and your community in this ongoing work that you do? That is a great question. Um, the very first thing you can do is to like learn what is going to support yourself. And I, ha- I do have a lot of resources for that. So I would love, you know, people are always welcome to connect with me or reach out to me about those resources, um, whether it's a therapy session or being part of a group that I run. I also teach yoga. Um, I'm a yoga teacher as well. Um, And I also recently created like a whole self-love journal for people. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So is that available on your website? Yes, it will be very, very soon because Mm. my other secret is that I'm not great at technology. We talked about this. This is an elder millennial thing. We grew up on like... Pac-Man. <laughs> I'm like the queen of having new technology, but not the best at doing it. So um, yes, the, all the offerings will be available on my site. But first, like my front line of everything is also um, my Instagram, somewhere under the rainbow. Um, and my website is rachelotistherapy.blog. So I'm sure we'll, I'll give you all that information. But yes. um, yeah, all these things are available. Um, And I just hope that people, you know, take away knowing that there's totally alternative forms of support out there for you, even if like what currently exists doesn't feel like it's. Mm, I love that. And and what's next in your advocacy and in your wellness journey? It sounds like, you know, getting this self-love journal out there and expanding the offerings uh, that you already have available on your website and stuff. That's really the way forward, right? Yeah, I mean, I I do a lot of collaborations, so um, getting to put my work out into the world is great. I also write a lot. Um, I'll be happy to share those articles with you. Please. I write for Healthline um, and Greta, so I write specifically um, from the perspective of a therapist, but also from the perspective of someone with chronic illness, which is really important. Um, so more writing, and I think eventually. Um, I'm I'm about to do my own book because I have a chapter out in a book that comes out in September. And that was like my first step into, you know, my dream. Um, so having a chapter in a book is amazing. I'll share that info with you. It's available for pre-order now. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, it's please. About, yeah, it's about embodied resilience. And, is that the um, name of the book? Yeah, it's embodied resilience. And then there's 
other words after it, but it's uh, specifically like within the yoga community. Mm. So it's like people who um, are from that perspective. But yeah, I just think more of this. And then um, I launched a retreat business just prior to COVID. So eventually um, in the future, future, when it's safe, um, getting to bring groups of people together again in person will be um, part of what I do. I love that. And it sounds like there was also maybe a nonprofit that was going to be born in there too, just in case you weren't busy enough. Oh yeah, definitely some, not one more, but <laughs> I also, my partner and I run diversity trainings as well. Mm. Um, and we help large scale organizations and small businesses um, bring that work in. So I'll share all these links with you. Um, I'd Love say it, yeah. all the things are and maybe I'll also have my own podcast at some point and get to have you on. I would love that. (laughs) Well, Rachel, it has been such a joy speaking with you today. Uh, What a beautiful human being you are. And thank you so much for sharing so honestly and openly about your experiences, the good and the bad. Um, And I'm so glad that there's someone like you out there who's trying to change the narrative in chronic illness and mental health for so many of us. So guys, if you're looking for a somatic therapist and someone who gets your experience, (laughs) certainly look Rachel up and we'll link to her website as well as her Instagram on the website page for this episode. Um, Rachel, thank you again for being on the show. You're a real bright spark and I'm just so happy to have met you. You too. You are also a bright spark. I appreciate meeting you and I'm sure we will have more collaborations or magic to come. I hope so. I do hope so. Amazing. And I'm going to bop off and be a therapist again. So thank you so much. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.